Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Nile Nine podcast. Before we resume our regular programming in on the Nile Nine podcast this week, uh, I wanted to talk to two people who are very involved in the Irish nightlife scene and in the Give Us the Night campaign. As you know, we've talked to Sunil Sharp and Robbie Kitt before about different aspects of nightlife, the nightlife economy and cultural offerings and uh, social engagement. But right now, uh, at the moment, up until this Friday, January 21st, there's an open consultation on the review of alcohol licensing that the government, the Irish government, are running right now. That you can all fill in, and everybody who has an interest in nightlife, an interest in clubs and spaces and how we operate, basically, um, should be looking at this. The open consultation on the review of alcohol licensing is available for anyone to make a submission to. It's free. And the Give Us the Night campaign has been uh, presented some compelling arguments in the past about this. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk to Sunil and Robbie about some of the aspects of the alcohol licensing. Like uh, some of our licensing laws go back to 1833. And then there's the Public Dance Halls Act of 1935, which is just still uh, relevant to us today, which it shouldn't be. So this is the opportunity for Ireland to modernise its licensing. And also, in a way that we can ch- separate church from state, we can separate alcohol, the sale of alcohol, and the licensing of alcohol from events. And that it would mean that we have the opportunity then to create new licences for places like theatres and nightclubs. And... The government are asking for the public's opinion on this. So it's really important now until you have, we have till Friday to do this. So we're going to talk to Robbie and Sunil about these kind of uh, ideas. There's a lot of, um, you may have heard some of these uh, terms before. There's talk of extinguishment and special exemption orders. 
we will go through a lot of what is involved in this alcohol licensing process and what maybe needs to be done. But generally, from our my perspective anyway, and this is me speaking as a person who is a DJ and a promoter and uh, run this website and who do all the does things in in a context of a live, it's very difficult in in this country to get past um, the alcohol licensing and the it's very it's overly complex. It's been around a very long time and it needs to change. And this public consultation is now there for to inform the proposed sale of alcohol bill you probably saw in the last few weeks a lot of discussion about the new uh, minimum unit pricing in ireland and how that affects the sale of alcohol in general what we're talking about here is how alcohol is tied to events and live music and nightclubs and festivals and there's a lot we can do in order to remove um, these old archaic laws that are really were not built for this purpose so now's the time there is an opportunity now to talk about longer pub and nightclub opening hours as well. Of course, that's one part of this justice uh, and this uh, sale of alcohol bill that could be relevant to us. Any nightclub or pub event or live event is basically tied to the alcohol license for that venue. I personally don't think that should be happening anymore. I think our licensing could be modernized to allow for more flexible opening hours. Ultimately, there is really good opportunity here for us to change uh, and modernize Irish nightlife culture and this is telling the government what we want for cultural venues like art galleries and theatres and sporting arenas we need to change the laws we need to change these things so I would encourage you to have a listen to Robbie and Sunil talk about the alcohol licensing there are some technical terms here but it doesn't require huge gaps of understanding I don't think and uh, it's really important that we all have a say in this so look we have till Friday this will hopefully inform your your um, submission. The submission itself, uh, there's a link on this podcast post and uh, you'll find out there. Open consultation on the review of alcohol licensing is what it's called. Uh, as I said, there'll be a link in the podcast. And I will be back with Andrea in the following uh, couple of weeks to chat to you more about normal things. But this is just, it's happening this week. We want you to pay attention to it. And so here is Sunil and Robbie to talk about Irish nightlife and changing the alcohol licensing. So as we said, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, has opened a consultation on the review of alcohol licensing that is available and open till Friday. So in order to establish what we might need uh, to think about in order to uh, address that consultation and reply to it, uh, Sunil and Robbie are going to uh, chat a bit about maybe what it is that uh, we should be looking at in terms of what is the alcohol licensing system and how what do we need to do to change it. Uh- yeah, I mean, just to just to get in quickly about uh, on that, just first point, I think for the public, they you know for for all the years that you can remember the the licensing laws, and depending what age you are, I mean, even if you are only eighteen, nineteen, in your early twenties, um, you're probably going to have had a problem with the licensing laws uh, at so at some point um, a, a, along the line. So, from our perspective, and from my perspective as well, having been involved in this campaign for so many years. 
uh, we have been we have been waiting and waiting and waiting over 15 years now. Um, and so it's a long wait. This this should have first happened back in 2005, actually. Um, and we've seen the amount of uh, of destruction it's caused, essentially, and, and the co collapse of our industry. You know, we had over five 500 nightclubs going back to around the turn of the millennium to now far below 100s, you know, and that's just nightclubs, you know, every, every part of our licensing system is flawed, you know, and is based on ancient legislation. So really we need to bring it up to modern standards. So if there's anything that the public feel is flawed in terms of our licensing, it's, it's particularly when they can go out and socialize, the types of venues that they can go to, unfortunately there's not that much choice anymore. By modernizing our licensing laws, it's going to bring us more in line with other neighboring states and give us a better chance of having the kind of nightlife that we want. I guess, I mean, the main thing here uh, to start with as well is that, you know, just to say how out of date and how uh, like uh, uh, our licensing laws are, like some of these laws go back way back. So what, 1833 is one licensing law? It's apparently still use. Um, obviously, there's there's more in terms of the dance hall act and stuff like that. Like these laws are are well out of date. It's a very layered thing, I think, and it's like it's like you know it's interesting. And even just to like give a very basic like uh, understanding of how this impacts. Obviously, what we're talking about here is like you know opening hours essentially, the late night opening hours of entertainment, music, cultural venues in general. Um, We've we face these kind of layered obstacles in this country where, as you spoke about, there's obviously older laws and um, stuff like the Public Consoles Act, which, you know, is a small part of the licensing arrangement, but also then also kind of maybe represents more even the attitude that has been given towards this type of activity in the past, this idea of containment, which like is kind of very central to the way in which Irish regulatory bodies try and approach the behaviors of, of Irish citizens, you know, it's like, we're not given the kind of, um, I suppose, respect to actually make our own decisions. And we're kind of told what we have to do. And that's kind of presented to us in a coercive way. That obviously has a long, you know, uh, storied history in this country in relation to the Catholic Church and how they saw socializing and the role of socializing in society and the kind of the sinful activities that they might have perceived being wrapped up in that that's not as dominant now that doesn't have as, an, as much of an impact now but we certainly are living in the legacy of those kind of situations but there's also you know um a more common thing and i think this isn't just like you know related to licensing this is a more general thing that we see in irish society overall is that essentially the way in which our regulatory framework is built and and um and shaped is is done so kind of in the interests of business leaders, people who are kind of maybe in a more dominant business position in those industries. So, you know, if we go back to the last time there was a significant licensing reform, well, it wasn't really reform, it was more like more restrictions were added in in 2008. Like it was a situation where there was no adequate definition of what a nightclub was, but nightclubs were largely using the theater license as a means to operate um, and distinguish themselves from pubs. Because I think one of the key points in this, in this licensing consultation that we really, really want to try and get across is that there's more types of uh, businesses in the nighttime economy than just a pub. And that's not meant to be an attack on pubs. That's just to say that there's a different distinction between what a pub is and what a nightclub is or what a cultural venue is. And that, isn't, that doesn't exist appropriately within our licensing framework at the moment. Now, 
as it has kind of gone in the past, unfortunately, there's just been this restriction so that everybody's kind of had to play by pub rules. And that's not really been in the interest of a lot of cultural venues, a lot of entertainment venues, nightclubs, et cetera, because they're operating by the rules of essentially a business where the trade is is selling alcohol. And, and it, it intrinsically links then the provision of these kind of entertainment and cultural venues towards the sale of alcohol and the licensing of those venues is related to that rather than related to what actually is provided by those venues. So within this consultation process, and I think, again, it's just something that's very common across a lot of different strands of Irish life. You know, you see these decisions being made in society and you're like, what? This doesn't represent the interest of citizens. This doesn't represent the interest of people who actually live here. And largely it's because those conversations are dominated by people who are kind of operating out of self-interest for their business. Now, it's a very precarious world. Again, that's not meant to be an attack on anybody. It's just the way in which things seem to go in this country. But the good thing about this consultation process is that it gives a way in which you as a citizen can actually intervene and, and, and have your say. And, like, and I think it's really important that people feel empowered to actually engage because the only way in which I see as kind of um, beginning to represent the will and the wants of people who actually live here trying to provide things in this country that, you know, we can actually get like, you know, I don't know, construct our social lives around something that I'm very interested in. And I am very passionate about is, is self social infrastructure. I don't think we have enough social infrastructure in this country. We're really, really lacking in it. And the licensing laws as complex and as a, as, you know, kind of, again, as layered a history as it has, they're something that are actually intrinsically tied towards the provision of that social infrastructure. So it's, it's, I really just would encourage people that they're interested in these things, if they do think that they have something to say on it, just engage. This is a free process. This consultation doesn't cost you anything. It's not like appealing to Board Planala or Dublin City Council. You can just set, send in an application if you, you know, if you are uh, an individual citizen, but like, you know, also if you're a promoter of, of, gigs if you run a festival if you're a performer if you're a worker in the area if you own a venue any of these things you can represent your views through this system and i think that engagement really is the kind of first step in which you can kind of start to intervene in these kind of decision making processes yeah that's something you talked about last year when we talked to you about um nightlife and stuff like that as well um on the podcast and also you know it's it's a strange time to be coming out of um you know obviously nothing's completely open yet in terms of like pandemic and lockdown and like if anything we're living through a time where pub times and, and restrictions are in place on nightclubs and all that kind of stuff as we know um which will change but it's an interesting time to then think about you know what we would actually want from a future of nightlife because we have been largely shut for two years the opportunity is now there to do so and we've also seen similarly you know with the Dublin's dying campaign, the cobblestone, and even things like uh, the public consultation on Capel Street in terms of restaurants and outdoor seating. You know, there's been a huge engagement with those kind of things, and and what we see and what we want from the city, especially now, um, and and in and in general in in the entire country, like what we want from ourselves in terms of. And I really like that idea of you know you have to engage with the process in order to make a change in it. Um, so could we talk a bit about, you know, what kind of things uh, uh, we, because like, I know in, based on the Give Us the Night mandate, there's a few good number of things that are relevant to this uh, open consultation. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think licenses, I, I definitely think, and I know this is the part that, um, 
that some like current license holders mightn't be too keen to hear, but we do need more. We do need new licenses. Uh, we need new licenses uh, to be put into the market that don't cost um, over fifty thousand euros just to be able to to set up your business on top of all the additional setup charges. You know, so so this idea that you would have to buy. Um, or extinguish a license. I mean, to be honest, I didn't expect, I didn't anticipate that the Justice, Justice Department were going to have a, a question regarding the extinguishment, extinguishment process in this, you know, but, uh, but it appears that like it is on their radar now, you know, so it would be probably something a little bit more technical uh, and something that, that, that affects business owners more than it does the public. But in, in, a, roundabout, in a roundabout way, it does have a, have a knock-on impact to the public because if it is hard for somebody, you know, from their community of their age in their area who would like to set up a bar, or a venue, and they have that um, that, that massive restriction uh, in place that doesn't uh, that doesn't allow them to. Um, and that's before you get. So there's another aspect here with regard to planning as well that hasn't really been addressed in this because it's planning rather than licensing. But maybe that's jumping the gun a little bit. But certainly, if it's if it's to start with, really really difficult uh, to get a license in the first place. Um, I think it's going to make it really really difficult, especially for very small venues. You know, and it's I think a lot of this. Um, like Robbie was talking about, you know, a lot of it tends to be based around, you know, bigger business, uh, established business people who may already have a number of bars or venues. Uh, we're very interested in um, in small spaces, you know, um, where where projects uh, start to develop, where communities start to grow, you know, and those are the kind of spaces that are generally sub. 100 or 200 person uh, venues and, and we need to see a lot more of those and what we've seen a lot as well in rural Ireland and in, in, in whether it's uh, villages or towns um, you know a certain generation or two got a little bit older and there weren't enough people to keep that space going to bring it up to the kind of level of earning that it needed to have whereas there could be enough people in that community that could put together a small little venue that would be perfect for the area and for emerging generations so that's something we need to look into and that's why we need to give easier access to uh, to communities and to young entrepreneurs to set up their own um, businesses bars venues etc yeah. so we're talking about you know being able to uh, you know not require uh, an existing license to have to disappear or extinguish before uh, setting a new one we're talking about uh, the barriers to entry that include like the special exemption order stuff like that enabling to open basically we're talking about things that are tied completely to alcohol licensing that aren't dependent on the sale of alcohol itself you know the cultural aspects of of trying to run a small venue um the financial burden that is placed upon um those smaller venues in order to scale means that you can you can cover those costs where we're talking yeah. about um, maybe smaller niche or not even niche but just like a smaller event or smaller cultural space that can mm. be allowed to uh, exist alongside existing uh uh, establishments. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things as well in relation to to what you're talking about there and deregulation, for instance, and different types of licenses. So first of all, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, like I mentioned there a few minutes ago, a lot of um, license holders will take this, um, they, they won't, they don't, they're not, they wouldn't be very happy about the idea of deregulation as well. And I mean, in some ways, in, in a lot of ways, we would completely understand that. But we would also have the view that many license holders have probably got the value of their license at this point, you know. But definitely those who have 
bought their, their license in recent years, or maybe those who've had it for many years as well. Maybe there should be a process where the government could buy back their license from them. Um, maybe there would be an opportunity within a certain time frame where they could literally, uh, their, 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 their license could be yeah, bought back by, by the state. Now, you'd have to ask a question then, should the taxpayer be, be paying for to extinguish licenses or to, to get to buy back their licenses? I'm not too sure, but there needs to be some type of fair process here for both sides, you know, and I think I think we shouldn't just say, oh, deregulation, just deregulate and that those and that those uh, business owners um, lose all of their investments, because if you've spent 50, 60, 70 grand and the government now tell you tomorrow that that's worthless, that's not very fair, you know. So I think, um, you know, we have heard some commentators recently talk about, oh, deregulate. It's as easy as that. It's not as easy as that. And it could be done in stages. There's different ways of doing this as well, you know, that could mean just doing it in, in, in stages. Maybe don't completely deregulate the bigger bars, but maybe um, allow smaller bar owners, smaller venue owners, be able to buy their own license, which doesn't involve, uh, and, and it would be directly from the state. It wouldn't be from an auctioneer or a broker or um, uh, in, in communication with a licensing firm, who are the people that, that profit from this as well, you know? So listen, everyone has to put food on the table, but it's an old, flawed uh, uh, pre-millennium uh, system that really should, should should have been finished by now. And finally, on that deregulation, to some pub owners, deregulation already happened. It didn't already happen. It happened. It happened from the perspective of it not being localized anymore, where you didn't have to extinguish a local license and you could transfer a license from another part of the country. But it was never deregulated. Um, in terms of different types of, um, we don't want to be too prescriptive in terms of the different types of licenses. But there are other licenses that work in other countries. Rob, Robbie mentions the the theatre license there. There could be something on the lines of a performance license, which is which is very similar to that. In other countries, uh, in 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 countries like Belgium, for instance, they have such they have a thing called an environmental permit, which I think some listeners might be interested in too, especially those who who want to get their. Uh, their, their set amount of uh, sleep at night, you know, um, each venue before they can get their license will be, uh, their venue will be measured in terms of the amount of uh, noise that it creates. Um, and for, and you, you know, you could be level one, two or three, you know, so this is something that this is this is an issue. There are going to be many um, many applications that go in around uh, noise. Uh, that is a, a problem going going um, uh, moving forward. In that we could change our licensing laws, but um, the 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 actual permission for a venue to open won't be granted. You know, so um, so so planning. You know, environmental impact. All of this is kind of tied into the to kind of future prospects of any of any venue. You know, so there there. There are different uh, uh, permits and licenses. You know, you could have a night venue license. Um, you could have like uh, like they do in the UK. You could have a, a premises license plus a public entertainment license. And I mean, finally, on that as well, we want to we want to um, have a, some type of uh, new um, entertainment license. Nothing to do with alcohol, but a new type of entertainment license uh, that will that will overwrite the existing dance license and music and singing license. And that would be like um, an amalgam. Um, public entertainment license on a par with the UK or Northern Ireland. So really, 
we don't have to look too far. You know, if you look to the UK, if you look to, to Spain, to Italy, it, you know, th those countries use something very similar to a theatre licence as well. So there's there's many examples around us of uh, of licences that work for for for, uh, for for nighttime use, you know. So like I just I suppose it, it might be useful just for some people who are listening to this just to provide a bit of context in terms of actually what the questionnaire is asking, I suppose, and, and it, like what it actually is approaching these issues from. And so, you know, we're talking about the licensing application system as well. Like this is like so we're, we're kind of entrenched in a system that has been in operation for a long time. And, and I think from our perspective, it's, it's just it's not really built to serve anybody. It doesn't really serve the interests of anybody. And. I think, you know, as Sunil has kind of talked about other types of licenses that could be introduced into the, into the, into the uh, licensing framework, what we're talking about is essentially creating distinctions between the type of different things that happen at night. You know, I think something that people really need to understand is there is no, there is no um, separate distinction of what a nightclub is uh, within licensing laws. So there is like no, no such thing as a nightclub within licensing frameworks. And Forever, nightclubs have had to use different types of licenses, whether it be a publican's license, whether it be a theater license, whether it be a special restaurant license, all of these random types of licenses, just so that they can actually get the uh, ability to get an SEO, which for anybody who doesn't understand is a special exemption order. That's essentially what we have here in, in, a, in lieu of a late license. That SEO is renewed uh, like in every single night that you open and it costs 410 euro per night, which if you're operating operating three nights per week, as many nightclubs would be, costs you about 60,000 euro per year um, to actually secure that license. And, and the system isn't obviously built or intended for nightclubs. You know, even the language of the of this SEO, the special exemption order is it just conveys what that is actually about, you know. So what's really important and like in one of the sections within this uh, questionnaire is about categories of licenses. And so I think for us, uh, something that is very, very important is that we have a very distinguished uh, category for nighttime venues, as, as Sunil talked about. And that can be something that is quite expansive in its category, but essentially relates to venues that operate, uh, operate at night and provide some form of entertainment, whether it be nightclubs, whether it be theaters, it could be even, you know, more expansive than that. It could be any, any type of kind of public performance type of venue where the actual aim of those venues is not necessarily to sell alcohol, but actually to provide some form of entertainment. And there is a lot of different types of licenses that you can look and, uh, and like compare across, you know, Europe and take uh, ideas in relation to that. But like also, you know, we also have to talk about the court system, the court system by which we actually, you know, apply for these licenses. And so, one of the big things that's in this questionnaire is this whole idea of um, the bureaucratic kind of overbearing nature of the licensing system. You know, you have to appear in court. And as Sunil talked about earlier on, the music and singing license and the and the dance license, these are things that you have to appear in front of court for. From our point of view, we're not calling for any sort of like, you know, loosening of the rules in terms of how you actually get these licenses. But we do think that it, it's far too much that people have to appear in front of a judge and go to court to to you know secure these licenses. Maybe there has to be an initial appearance. But when you're talking about renewals and there's no objections to your license, there's no reason why these venue operators should have to go to court every single year and do these things. These things should be brought online, and there should be a modern system to do that by. And again, like you know, a lot of the system uh, for the courts processes 
they're deeply outdated as well. Like not only are the laws outdated, but actually the processes themselves, they're not online. There's no registry online where you can actually in, like, you know, um, find license holders. It's all of this information is kind of has to be obtained directly from the court. So all of those type of things, these very simple things, which you would imagine have already been incorporated into the system, you can, you can basically be assured that they haven't been. Um, and so there's like, there's a lot of input into the, into the questionnaire and even just to briefly just go through some of the sections here you know the sections within the the questionnaire the first question first question is about the licensing application system second is about categories of license the third is about public health the fourth is about nightclubs late bars and special exemption orders and the fourth is about trading hours and then we get into the issues about online sales and extinguishment which i think for us we don't have as strong a position on um, so it's just basically those, those are the kind of the key headers, uh, on which this kind of questionnaire is approaching from. And again, it is technical. Like this is something that is some, somewhat technical. Um, I would, I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, if you like want advice or would like any sort of further information, please don't hesitate to contact us either. You know, like Zin, we're absolutely willing to, you know, give people a bit more information on this that might be not, might not be able to communicate through this podcast, but it's just very, very important for us, I think, that people actually engage with this and understand that these type of decisions have yeah. real direct impact in their everyday lives. I would say I think it's probably, you know, it's fair enough if you, like none of us, uh, not everyone here is, or listen to this is going to be like uh, technically minded and uh, familiar with all the jargon. And certainly I think it's okay for you as an individual in society to fill this in and and specify what you would like, as long as you have, I think what's helpful is probably have an overarching idea of what you would like uh this to be in the licensing system to be what it would look like what the, what does the future look like as in less bureaucracy and um, more opportunity and um, less restrictions and just generally you know a modernization like you said like those very obvious things like the stuff like public health a lot of things we've talked about before about you know shutting shutting events and, and shutting uh, pubs and nightclubs and and uh uh, at the same time, all those kind of things that um, matter and make a huge difference in terms of public health. Right now, you can only go, uh, you everyone is kicked out of a pub at eight p.m. and you know you're seeing that kind of uh, obviously it's way, way earlier than it used to be, and it is, but it is you know kind of going backwards in terms of what we would like to see in the future. You know, um, everything at the same time, but what and a wider thing, yeah, I think you know. Um, I think it's okay to look at this and go, okay, I don't really know the dif difference between the district court and the circuit court, but what I do know is that I would like what I would like this to look like. If if you were setting up nightclub, if you're going to a nightclub, you want things to happen that aren't restricted, um, and you can start with that in terms of. I think the main thing as well is like not that the the alcohol licensing application is what it's called, but you know, it's not just about alcohol here; it's about everything else, and it's about you know we've seen the the minimum unit pricing come in in Ireland, which is just uh, doesn't make sense to me personally. But, you know, it's not about these kind of restrictions. It's about looking at what we want from our ourselves and uh, uh, for our future societies as well. So, you know, yeah. it's it's our opportunity to uh, address that. Yeah, absolutely, Niall. And I mean, I think it's, it's you know, the, the key word here as well is flexibility. You know, I think if we want... If we want a culture like Berlin or Amsterdam, I, I mean, generally the best idea would probably be to go to Berlin or Amsterdam. We, we don't necessarily think that a city like Dublin is going to turn into a city like Berlin or Amsterdam 
in the next few years, in the next five years. But it could be it could be something close, certainly in 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 terms of the types of venues that we use. I mean, that's a that's a big one also. Um, maybe that's a, a topic for another for another podcast as well in terms of access to space. But the, the big problem that I've really experienced, I'm sure everyone, we're all the same here here on the call, but uh, the lack of investments that's been coming into the industry over the last 10 to 20 years, you know, um, back in the 90s, there were a lot more, um, and going further back again, obviously, there were a lot more operators who were who were opening venues, who were, who were starting up new projects, who were opening this cool space down the down the Docklands, you know. Obviously, there's not there's not much uh, opportunity down Dublin Docklands anymore. You're starting to see it. Maybe the possibilities could be popping up more so in cities like Cork and Limerick, and hopefully, hopefully, other spots like Galway and and Waterford um, and other locations as well. In Dublin, I don't want to say that it's over, but definitely we need to be able to look to um, to some of our industrial spaces, uh, places on the outskirts of the city. Um, and the only way that we're going to see real investments go into, into locations and into buildings like that is if the licensing laws change and if we do have more favourable opening hours and if people can leave a venue at six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning um, and and... And I guess to some extent as well, use that that inspiration, that influence that they now, that newfound influence that they now have from these licensing laws, from that experience, to actually help to help it to uh, to impact on the on the cultural output, particularly the creative output uh, that comes from from when I I don't know my my issue with Dublin mostly over the last particularly over the last decade, is that I haven't been able to come out of club nights or come away from experiences in Ireland feeling inspired. I just haven't felt inspired at all. Um, I feel inspired by the people. I feel inspired by the city. And that's just if I'm talking about Dublin, I feel inspired by certain parts of the country just because they're Ireland. But I don't feel inspired by the the surroundings in the same way that I would if I was in a, a an international city where I come out a little bit later at night where everything's just a little bit calmer, number one. That's another problem with Ireland too, is that we've always have a very tense um, atmosphere come two or three o'clock. Uh, the guards are trying to sweep everyone home. Um, and it can sometimes be a little bit of a, or it has been in the past, a little bit of a kind of a, a volatile environment uh, to, to, to be involved in and to be around. And it's actually been very off-putting, particularly for older generations as well. So what we'd love to see is that everything is not concentrated on this, on this area of between, on this time between 2 and 3 a.m., and that, ve and that venues in the city centre and on the outskirts of the city and in towns and in villages as well can go that little bit later and where everyone's not been forced to, to, to leave that venue at the same time. Um, the thing that I love about being in a city like Berlin in Amsterdam is that you you don't have to report to anyone. You don't have to, like, you, you can be out with your, your your mates and stuff like that, and it doesn't have to be like, oh, are we going yet? Uh, have you got your jacket? Uh, I'll meet you outside. It's not to say that people don't do that in other countries, but at sometimes people just pop off, you know? They're just going, all right, yeah, see you later. Right, see you, enjoy. Or they don't say anything, they just head. And I know that obviously will happen here too, but by and large, it's sort of like everyone's just being herded house 
all at once and uh, that's what I love about leaving a venue sometimes I'll give you an example of a place um, I played somewhere I think in the north of Portugal there a few years back and it was around Christmas time um, and it was like I remember coming out of it at about um, it was this beautiful big warehouse really like you wouldn't have thought it when you were going in that there was any music in it but then you went through a few a few layers a few different rooms and then you're into the main room it would have held about 1500 people and it was like it was like almost like a festival atmosphere and it was like that for most of the night and then when I left again I think I played between about maybe three and six or three and five or something like that and when I left again stayed for about an hour or two left at about seven o'clock and as I got out up close close the the inside door and we got out you couldn't even hear anything inside and it was still all go, going on inside full-on atmosphere and that was on the outskirts of the city as well and there's many buildings like that on the outskirts of the city and the idea of having good nightclubs both in the center of our cities and on the outskirts has to be a reality a lot of people that are visiting cities like amsterdam as well are seeing this these these tremendous warehouses i mean the kinds of spaces that we have here but we don't use for events um and because the licensing laws are there because they can have different uh, a different uh, a different number of groups coming in and out of this so it's almost like a conveyor belt that one group is coming in for a few hours getting their fill leaving again then another group is coming in the same we can do this and this will really add up for uh, for operators for collector uh, for collectives for investors um, which will make the the business model for actually running a venue an attractive one again. Because as much as we want to have, we obviously want to have community um, community um, community venues, and that's really really important to us. But for 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 cities as well, where we need bigger venues too, we're going to need investments. And it's really, really key that we have later, uh, later opening hours for that. Yeah, and yeah. like also just to build a little bit on that point, and maybe also just talk because like I, Sunil was talking about small spaces earlier on as well, and you know I think it is something that people need to realize. Like you know, like something like Berlin or Amsterdam, these kind of cities where they have such strong kind of infrastructure in relation to nighttime culture. You know, we're not going to be able to establish that overnight, but that's for me, why I'm interested in small spaces, because the thing about physical spaces is that they do create the kind of breeding ground for where this stuff begins. And, and so, you know, I've, I was running nights in, in Jigsaw, which is a community art space, which a lot of people knew with some friends. Uh, we had a club night called Dip and we were running them from 2015 until the space closed in 2020. And there's a lot of people who were inv involved in that group who have been looking for a space in the city since then. And it's just impossible and not just in the city, but also on the outskirts of the city. It's really, really, really difficult. And and that's like before you even get into the situation that once you secure a space, now how are you going to license that space? And um, so like for us, I think this is this kind of comes down to this thing that we're talking about. It's like these kind of separate categories for different types of spaces that could operate in different ways. Yes, you could have your commercial nightclubs, which could operate in a certain way, but also you could have community art spaces, which could actually provide, you know, these kind of community spaces. And like, it, like that's where you actually then get these scenes coming down the road. Like I remember uh, like driving Tamasumo, who's a resident DJ in Panorama Bar in, in uh, Germany. She was over playing a gig and she was telling me about the early days of Oscar Pun when like Bergheim was starting out. And she was saying it was like, there was nobody there. Like there was like, you know, they'd have these weekly events and it was like really sparsely populated. And, you know, there's only like maybe 100, 200 people coming to the nights in the first year or two of, of them running those things. But then over time, it becomes this institution. And like, 
it doesn't start like at the point where you don't you don't just take a big massive institution and just put it in a city and say well there you go now you have your clubbing scene that's just not how it works like it, it's never worked like that and and there needs to be a more holistic approach to this thing and what what for me is a massive barrier is that initial obstacle to entry for small spaces for you know small art and music collectives for you know gallery spaces for theater spaces these kind of cultural spaces that are providing you know infrastructure for small artists to do their thing and express themselves and those places need to be facilitated and expanded because once you actually like facilitate those physical spaces then you then you're bringing people together now you've built the social infrastructure and from that will come great things in the future it's inevitable when you get people together in physical space that they're going to yeah. come up with a creative and inventive ways to do things but that's just the that's the step that needs to be taken towards that direction from my perspective yeah and there's next to none of those venues in in the country uh ones that can go actually go late as well you know imagine there was one of those in every county just one you know what a difference yeah. that would make you know yeah and that's the thing about the prohibitive it's prohibitive uh licensing laws we have at the moment which don't really allow those kind of breeding grounds to exist because you're putting barriers and financial barriers or otherwise on uh on those spaces and those and those communities as well and like you're really are you know to order to do those kind of events you are putting so many barriers in front of people in order and then that means it has a knock-on effect in terms of what culture exists in ireland and what culture exists around uh, whether you can possibly make a living from it and maybe like you said if you did have a space in every city in ireland that would uh, be open to those kind of events then you can you know have an infrastructure that allows people to make money out of it and uh, make a living out of it as well as well as the the wider thing of actually the cultural output of uh, the country and you know we're talking about a positive impact in those terms and like allowing the nightlife economy or whatever it is to flourish um, in those ways just means that we have those opportunities to grow that culture here as opposed to going well no you can't do that here you can't do that well we, we can't find a space you know like we can't do what we'd like to do you know I yeah. think it's about allowing those possibilities to take 100 and it's also about having a more holistic economic policy like this is like you know like let's say for example something that obviously is something that everybody is aware of you know development of hotels in Dublin. something that I, I in a conversation i had with one of the Dublin city council planners and, and an argument that was used in a lot of time in terms of the building of, of hotels that we are at a hundred percent occupancy. Oh, well, we're at a hundred percent occupancy of hotels. So there's no hotel space in the city. So we need to build more hotels now. Like, and that was the argument that was made pre pandemic. And there was actually like in uh, research or like uh, Fulcher Ireland put out a kind of a, a health report on the hotels sector. And they found that there's, there was less than 30% occupancy in the like last quarter of 2021. So like we're still building hotels, even though the, like in the initial model that was used to build hotels was because of this, you know, very myopic focus on hundred percent occupancy, these kind of this number data led like um, cost benefit analysis, like approach towards development. What I think it needs to be listened to is the views of like people within cultural communities and not just because they're wishy-washy artists who want spaces to express themselves because they actually understand what goes into the foundations of these communities and they understand it in a lived way. And it's it's high time that those kind of uh, perspectives are incorporated into these models, because if they're not, then you're just not going to build sustainable models and you're going to face this constant kind of, um, I suppose, just cycle of 
disappointment when these uh, trends change and suddenly your your model is completely uh, myopically focused on a single way of developing your city. And I think that's something that we all are living through in Dublin City, particularly across the country at large. To be honest. Is there anything in specifically you'd like to get across that we haven't talked about yet in terms of this actual consultation process? And what are we looking at in terms of a timeline, do you think, for for what this might be? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I mean, in terms of all the questions, uh, you don't have to answer all of the questions. So as we spoke about, some parts of it might be a little bit technical, um, but certainly the bits that do seem easier to answer, um, you know, answer those. Give, I mean, no, no, no answer is a stupid answer. You know, I think I think we all have our own um our own wishes and desires about what we want our, our future to look like, whether we're involved in the industry or whether we're just going out from a social point of view. Uh, what, what, what we're anticipating, the, the kind of the, 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 the time frame or the schedule for this, um, it, it should be that the heads of bill, the initial heads of bill will be, because that will come in two stages, but we're at the moment, we're, we're under the impression that those will be published maybe in March um with perhaps a full a full uh, a full rundown of the whole bill to come by early uh, summer um and that, then the countdown will be on really then it's about when that bill is going to be published now we obviously have bad experience of this over the years and this is the same bill the same sale of alcohol bill that was first drafted back in 2005 that's when work um first began on that you know so that's how long this particular bill is in the works you know they they down tools on us quite a few years ago now and fr fr from what i know it was up at something like draft seven um, now, obviously, part you know, great parts of that of that bill need to be to, to be freshened up. But that's what this consultation is about. It's taking um, it's taking feedback from citizens today in 2022. Um, there is there has been talk that this um, bill. I mean, you were talking about earlier about the original licensing act from the 1830s. Um, uh, like there is there is talk that this that this new act will 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 overwrite a lot of that and will uh, essentially be future proof for the next uh, hundred years or more again i'm not sure if that's a great idea either but um what we do something that we will be asking for as well is that there is a review of this um of these licensing changes within a two year period as well i think it's very important uh, first of all obviously that we get this right but what if we don't get it right you know what has happened in the past, especially in 2008, they made these very quick, um, these very quick changes. And to be honest as well, you know, anyway, we could go back down for to forget about those days and what happened then as well, because it was just a complete another mess. But the, um, and everybody knew when they were making the changes that they were the wrong decisions. They were all made very, very hastily. Um, there was no attempt to go back and amend anything. Uh, the sale of alcohol bill was meant to be coming down the track, never came. So I think it's very important. Um, we did have something called the, the Liquor Licensing Commission, the, com the Commission on liquor licensing who were at the time a larger group involving stakeholders from the uh, industry uh, but also a kind of a, a, a another more elite uh, group um, of experts at the top including uh, doctors and criminologists and guards um, who then made up the uh, the expert the uh, 
expert alcohol group, the, al the what was it, the expert group on alcohol at the time, I forget the exact name actually while, while we're here, but, um, but from the time that they um, handed in their final report, we had no group that ever met after that to oversee or to try to get to grips with, with licensing changes again. We had the Liquor Licensing Commission for, I'm not too sure, for how many years that it was. And it was a very balanced group as well. I mean, it had stakeholders right across the industry. Um, it had um, it, it had a few younger members on it as well who who represented the, the the views of young people and students also. So I don't see anything wrong with us setting up a group like that again in the future, in the near future, perhaps um, at some point in another couple of years time. I mean, this particular process has been a little bit epic already. You know, it shouldn't have really gone on for as long as it has. But here we are now, um, after this consultation goes through, there will be another, uh, I think Robbie mentioned earlier, there will be one last um, uh, steering group then who will, who, who, will, who, who will essentially steer this through and help, help put the bill together. So, uh, but what we would be worried about um, is that this, these changes won't all be positive. Um, and we'll need a review within a year or two. We are, and just finally on this as well, um, this will take a leap of faith from everyone, you know, it will take a leap of faith from existing license holders. A lot of them have had, you know, been operating under very, very tough conditions, you know, over the years, you know, in the license trade, it's very, very hard to, to make um, a, a venue or a pub um, or any kind of venue that involves selling alcohol actually work, you know? So everybody feels threatened by any kind of change, particularly if it's kind of half working for you already, you know? But what I always think back to the, are the better days when there were a lot more people going out, you know, thinking of a city like Dublin where, you know, we had we had a thriving nightlife scene. It was very, very, it was really, really vibrant. Um, you know, our population has only got bigger than then, than then and it's going to continue to grow. So, you know, maybe it's just the optimist in me, but I always feel that we can, it's not going to look exactly the same as it is then, but certainly in terms of numbers and getting more people into our uh, towns and cities at night, I think we can easily go back to those levels again, you know, or certainly come close, you know, and I think some people need to just kind of just understand by having more activity, it will contribute to the to the health of their business too, you know. So, but also we we need to ensure that guards, uh, councils, everyone who might have had, um, you know, sometimes you know a, a quite a lot of control with this in the past, and who will continue to have a lot of control over this in the future, that they can hopefully loosen up a little bit as well and keep a little bit of an open mind about what's ahead, ahead. because it's going to be really important that we all work together, not that we put all this work into us and that we all get frustrated in another six months or a year's time when we see that, you know, whatever group don't want to let us sort of move ahead. Because as we've seen, sometimes people can campaign for things for many, many years, for decades. And even after all of that, after the decision is made, it still doesn't really properly go through, you know? And that would, would also be a little bit of a fear of ours with the, with, the, uh, with the licensing. But at the same time, and finally on that, you know, we, we do have to pay testament to the people who've been working on this, particularly um, with, within the culture department who put a, put a lot of work into it over the last year and a half. And it's, it's actually been really good to see the relations that have grown even between, you know, culture and justice. Um, and they're the two departments who you need to be working um, and, and developing a good relationship on this stuff. So from, from our end, from a 
what we see, everything's going in the right direction. And I think we, everybody just has to have confidence in what can come from it. So, yeah. And like, I I think like, yeah, what you touched on there, Sunil, in relation to like councils and guards, like I, I think with this review, we really would just like to see transparent processes, I suppose, and just ways in which people like it's in people across the board can see how this is actually working because i think one of the big things about the current system is that it is such a mess we are entrenched in such a kind of a, a layered complex system that's been developed over the course of 180 years really that it's just very hard for anybody to know what's going on but even just to go back to what your point was earlier on Niall, i think that idea of like putting in an application not necessarily you know maybe not being confident enough to put in an application because of technical like uh, barriers or anything like that, don't let that stop you. You know, like you can actually just submit an email if you don't want to say, uh, submit the questionnaire to the Department of Justice. And like, in uh, also like be be imaginative of what you want to see in this. You know, like something that I think would be very very important is that this could be a, a good step where the provision of entertainment and the licensing of that can be separated from the from the licensing of alcohol you know like in i think it would be great if we were able to see art spaces you know facilitating more byob events and not having to sell alcohol to actually put on their events you know there's a lot of things that could actually happen in the nighttime economy space and if those things are things that interest you then use this opportunity to engage with the system and suggest them to the department of justice because the more people that do actually do that that is how these things are impacted it's like like you know, it's just, it's, yeah, it's just the first step of actually making, uh, making an impact in your local environment and in your everyday lives. You know, it's the only way in which you will have the opportunity to do that. It's not a perfect mechanism. It's certainly the case that, you know, maybe the views of individuals won't be as kind of held up as important as the views of sectoral representatives or anything like that. But at the same time, it's something that I think culturally, you know, we need to start incorporating into our behavior in, in terms of our interaction with the state and our our ideas around these types of things, you know, like some, whether it be cultural spaces, theaters, art spaces, all of these different places that could actually supplement their business models by operating later into the night and providing, again, cultural events, social infrastructure. These are just things that I think personally, especially after the pandemic, are so fundamentally important to our lives, but we are so restricted in what we can and can't do in this country. And largely like it's listen this is not a silver bullet either there's a lot of other things that need to be done there's insurance there's all different types of financial barriers that stand in the way of these things but this is a very very important step and it needs to be to be resolved so this i suppose is the opportunity for people to get involved in doing that yeah actually uh, one more thing sorry because i th- i know this is probably the question a lot of people are asking and we haven't answered it um a lot of people are wondering well what time what time should everywhere open till um what time do you think they should open till? That's really, that's really the, the, the answer. You know, we don't want to tell you exactly what time, but we do get asked that a lot. What time should places open till? You know, there is an appetite out there for roughly five to six a.m. at the moment. Uh, and just getting back to what Robbie said, um, we definitely feel that there should be a clear, um, uh, a, f- a clear separation between the sale of alcohol and entertainment and cultural activity, you know? So even if the bar were to shut at a particular time, we don't see any reason why entertainment wouldn't be able to carry on after that as well. But again, you know, compared to your to, to your favorite city or club somewhere around Europe or venue, live venue, whatever it might be, what time do they open till? 
did you have a good time there you know it does that seem like the fair time to open till so it's up to you we're definitely going to be opening um to, until you know at later time than we have in the past what we really don't want though is for places to, is, is for it to just all be about the time you know because i think some stakeholders are like all right how many how many extra hours can we sell drink for and that's grand that's what they that's the bottom line for them that's what they need to know but for us it's a, it's, it's a lot more than that you know yeah the wider conversations for us are means you know we can talk about the cultural opportunities and the flexibility is comes back to what you said there about flexibility you know allowing things to take place and not just being well this is the hard and fast rule you know and in many ways this conversation is about uh the flexibility of licensing the flexibility of entertainment the flexibility of uh of cultural offerings and what we can do in terms of uh, allowing all those things to happen and i think for a lot of people that is probably a good way to think about this uh, application process and what they can do going forward and how they can think about it and translate that to both our representatives and to each other and then we can you know hopefully get to a point where things will be allowed to um you know exist and be flexible and not all tied to licensing alcohol licensing specifically as well yeah yeah absolutely and that's all 24-hour licensing as well also means you know it's just flexibility you know most a very small percentage of um licensed premises over in the uk when they had the opportunity of going 24-hour actually availed of that you know so a lot of people when they hear 24-hour I mean, when it actually comes down to us, most venues that have a 24 hour license rarely use it, you know, so maybe something else to think about, you know, it's just to have it there if you needed it for certain times of the year or special one off occasions, or maybe that's just the kind of events that you run at weekends, you know. So. And one final question, do you think that, like does this have a uh, this must have a bearing as well on in terms of festivals and stuff like that as well? Like, how does that kind of bring into it? I think I think it should do. I mean, I think, again, that would be that's a question for a lot of we haven't actually spoken to too many festival organizers about this because I've definitely thought about that a lot. Niall. It's like, you know, when, when we're at festivals, like, you know, the bar shuts very early at them, you know, and it would be nice to think that instead of, you know, walking around the campsite drinking warm cans that you might be able to, you know, it's nothing wrong with a warm can either, but I prefer to be able to at times be able to just go to a bar like I would in a venue if I was at a festival, you know, but definitely uh, on festival sites, we're just, just talking particularly about alcohol licensing um, uh, bars do shut down very early, you know, so you'd like to think that that, you know, that that could be further rolled out. Again, a lot of that comes down to, to local agreements and stuff as well. But when we were just talking about that leap of faith earlier, you know, you'd like to think that it could be loosened up in, in the festival um, market as well. Yeah. All right, Sunil, Robbie, thanks so much for your time and uh, uh, best luck with everybody uh, in the next tour on the licensing laws. Thanks, Niall. Thanks Thanks for having us. Um...
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.